people are, are much more understanding that their internet connection is the most important part of their telecommunications package. And once they have that, they can do just about whatever they want. Welcome to episode 399 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Jess Delfiaco, Communications Manager. For this episode, we're joined by Mark Howell, former CIO from Concord, Massachusetts. The town, which celebrates its historical relevance, also has the benefit of a fiber optic community network. Christopher and Mark talk about the history of the network, including why Concord decided to develop the infrastructure, how they funded it, and the local enthusiasm that drove the project. Mark also describes what it was like to enter the internet access business and reviews some of the challenges they faced. Mark has words of advice for other communities considering a similar investment. You can learn more details about the network in the case study, Citizens Take Charge, Concord, Massachusetts Builds a Fiber Network, from the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Now here's Christopher talking with Mark Howell, former CIO from Concord, Massachusetts. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. Today I'm speaking with someone from another M state, uh, not an M city though, Mark Howell, former CIO for the town of Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I've I've been following from afar your progress out there in, in Massachusetts, one of a, a really good handful of municipal networks uh, across the state. And so I'm excited to learn more about it. But let's start by just asking people to remember that Concord is a fairly important place in the history of the United States. And you could tell us a little bit about it so we have a sense of the area we're talking about. Absolutely. Concord is one of the oldest communities in the country, was first settled in 1635, and it's located about 15 miles northwest of Boston. It's probably best known as the destination of the midnight ride of Paul Revere in 1775 on the eve of the first battle of the American Revolutionary War. Concord's also the home of Louisa May Alcott, the famous author of the Little Women book, now a movie, as well as Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. So democracy, literature, and ecology are all pretty deeply rooted in this community. It's a medium-sized suburban community now, about 18,000 people and 25 square miles. And it actually has some working farms that have still in, in operation ever since colonial times. Concord's a New England town. It features an open town meeting form of governance, which is important on our broadband mission. And There's a select board and a town meeting, which is a legislative session that's open to all registered voters. That's where all the really important decisions about the town are made. It's a town with a lot of history, and, and that's what we're about to discuss. I'll bet uh, it felt like those uh, copper lines dated back to, uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah, we absolutely have some some very old infrastructure. Um, some of it's been operating for a good deal of town, time, and that definitely does play into our history with municipal utilities. So let's let's dig into that. Uh, why did uh, Concord first get involved with fiber optics? So we came to it through the electric system. Concord's been operating a municipal electric utility for over 100 years. The light plant, as we call it, was originally a cold fire generator that was used to generate enough electricity to 
uh, run the pumps for the sewer system. Uh, Concord has a couple of rivers running through it, and we needed to you know, get the water out of the center of town uh, from time to time. There were really two main reasons why the Concord Municipal Light Plant decided to build a fiber optic network and then later start an internet service. The first was to support energy management and load control on the electric distribution grid. And the second was because we recognized that telecommunication services would help make Concord an attractive place for businesses. A number of years ago, back in the early 2000s, we had run a program for electrothermal heating and hot water controllers. And those devices were controlled using phone lines. And the equipment that we used to connect those um, load control switches were getting obsolete and we couldn't get parts to replace it. So we started looking for a new network to enable us to uh, to replace that. And that's when the idea of building a fiber optic network came up. So let's let's just dig into the, the water control system briefly to not gloss over that for people who are encountering it for the first time. Um, what was the, the purpose of that and why did you need to be in communication with it? So the idea was that we would be able to use these electrothermal storage devices, which are basically just big ceramic bricks um, that were built into radiators and hot water heaters in people's homes. And the idea was that we could charge up those the, that thermal storage at night um, using cheap electricity that we could purchase overnight and then use that heat energy during the day to keep the house warm or to heat their domestic hot water. And so we needed to be able to turn those devices on and off on demand, which requires two-way communications. And so you ended up uh, replacing the the old system as it aged out within a, a fiber optic system that was um, built entirely for electrical uses, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. And the idea was to, to um, build a smart grid. So this was around 2008. And what we were looking forward to was the ability to be able to do those load control programs and maybe even expand them into things like thermostats. And uh, we even had an idea about uh, controlling uh, pool pumps and things like that. Some of those ideas in the end didn't work out, but uh, we did end up building the fiber network in order to enable that control anyway. Yeah, this seems like the the kind of experimentation that we often associate with Chattanooga, where, you know, we, we tend to focus on all the things that have worked very well in, in Chattanooga. But as we're trying to figure out how to both lower electrical costs and also green the grid so we can be more efficient, uh, these are the sorts of experiments that we need to be trying, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. We've learned a lot as we ran that uh, network. And um, discovered quite a few things about leaf cover and how far Zigbee signals will go and where Wi-Fi will reach and, um, because that network was somewhat complicated. It involved repeaters that were on street lights that would communicate with electric meters at the home as well as the load control switches. And it's still operating today for a number of smart meters, and that's how we do AMI, although we are starting to look at replacing that. So when you started offering the telecommunications services, then tell us how that worked. So the idea was to build a fiber network to enable us to install these gateways, as we call them, that would uh, collect information from the electric grid. But in that process, we overbuilt the fiber so that we ended up with fiber to the curb in front of all of, well, 95% of residences in, in Concord. And at that time, the light plant director, Dan Sack, understood that it would be an option to add an internet service over and above the 
the smart grid. And that was a, going to be a way to potentially help pay for that uh, fiber investment. And how did people react to that? Uh, people wanted to do it. The cable companies, of course, weren't weren't too thrilled and, and they came out and, and fought against it. We actually had to pass the authorization for the light plant to enter the telecommunications uh, business through town meeting. And that required three uh, separate votes uh, across three different years. And the, the first year, there was quite a bit of pushback from the industry. Did that really catch on among town residents? Uh, you know, my my impression of of town meeting day is that unlike, for instance, my city, where uh, I would say far too few people participate, that um, people take it seriously out in uh, the New England area. We do. It wasn't one of the record setting town meetings that, in terms of, of attendance that usually is reserved for things like voting bonds for school buildings. But it was certainly a, uh, an important issue at that at that time. And uh, there was a lot of attention paid. And as you went year year after year, was there a change in enthusiasm at all? Certainly the town's enthusiasm. It was just about a unanimous vote, as I recall, each time. And uh, the industry basically stopped fighting it after the first vote and after they'd lost that first vote. Um, it wasn't until several years after the vote authorizing telecommunications that the bond was actually put forward to uh, construct the fiber network. And that was actually in the 2009 town meeting. So most of the, the construction costs were borne by the electric utility uh, because of this, the history and the, uh, the need to manage demand. And then um, a smaller portion was for the, the telecom portion. Um, what exactly did that buy? I, mean, what did the, I think it was $600,000 if I read correctly in the, the study that um, David Talbot and others did through the Berkman Klein Center um, 2016 study. The, I meant to have it in front of me, but I've forgotten the title of it. But um, I'm sure that will be noted probably in the introduction through the miracle of editing. Um. <laughs> sure. Well, I can cover that in some detail. So uh, Concord actually applied for American Recovery and Reinvestment Act funding for the project, but was denied. Uh, so the, the light plant brought a bond request to a bond authorization request to town meeting for four and a half million dollars to construct the smart grid and build the fiber from to the curb. Um, Three point four million of that was labor and materials for the backbone distribution network. And there was another five hundred thousand for smart grid equipment and and the vehicle and engineering services and that sort of thing. So overall, it cost three point nine million dollars to actually build that fiber network. In 2013, when we decided that we would start an internet service, I went before town meeting and requested a borrowing authorization of a million dollars. And that million dollars was startup equipment for the uh, internet service specifically. And it was meant to give us some working capital to, to fund the first couple of years of that program. Let me let me just jump in for a second to ask you if you remember back to that time was that was that intimidating for you to be considering going into that? We did it carefully. I worked with another resident and we did some fairly careful business planning around it, but we were pretty confident that we were going to be able to get to the number of subscribers that we needed to get to to break even. And in fact, um, the plan that we put in place really did come through. Uh, we, by, you know, 2015, we had about, uh, 400, well, $350,000 in revenue. And, uh, that was up to 556,000 in 16, 17, we were at 700 and by 2018, we were uh, almost a million dollars. And now, uh, 
2019, we ended up with about $1.2 million of, of revenue, and that is well over our operating costs. So we're cash flow positive uh, in five years, and we sort of designed our build to do a gradual construction that way. And so then you, you actually are doing drops from the fiber pass that you built for the electric system into the home then? Exactly. The smart grid funding paid for fiber to a splice case within four or 500 feet, usually of most homes. So uh, we did, the network was designed and built to run basically one fiber strand to each parcel of property in town. Now, I interrupted you. Did you want to go back to the other the piece of the funding? Well, we did get a second authorization for a second borrowing of a million dollars after we started, and that was really looking at sort of uh, the next set of capital investments, although in the end, we haven't needed to draw on that. So um, at this stage of the game, the the business is really quite self-sufficient. And so I guess one of the things I always like to ask is, was it worth it? And tell me how you'd convince me if I was, if I was skeptical, um, which, as you know, I'm not particularly in this case. I mean, to me, it seems pretty obvious, but, but for someone who is skeptical, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them that it's a lot easier than it was. I, I, at the time that I was planning this in, in 2013-14, I felt like uh, there wasn't a ton of information out there about how to do this. Uh, GPON was a relatively new thing. People were not streaming television, for example. So when we entered the business with only high-speed internet, uh, we got a lot of questions about what about phone service, what about video. And now a lot of those questions I think have been asked and answered. People are are much more understanding that their internet connection is the most important part of their telecommunications package. And once they have that, they can do just about whatever they want. You entered, I think, with a pretty ambitious um, 200 megabit symmetrical service, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. And and then you also had a, a two-year agreement, which is something that uh, we don't often see uh, among municipalities in part because um, I think when they do focus groups to to talk with citizens about what they want, a lot of times, <laughs> whoever wants to be bound by a contract, if you don't have to be. Um, but you want to talk a little bit about the decision making that, that went into that? Sure. We wanted to use a fixed, very simple pricing structure. So we decided on four tiers of service, which we called um, entry, basic, high speed and ultra. And the idea was that we would hold that price, have no add-ons or extra fees, and charge that simple pricing model to everybody at the same time. So anytime we upgraded the speed, which we did twice, um, we gave everybody the same new service right away automatically without without changing their their structure the reason that we went we did charge an installation fee it was pretty modest you know by most standards it was 150 dollars, which was really just a fraction of what it actually cost us to connect that particular home and our early termination or contract was written pretty well in favor of the consumers i believe we we had a 240 dollar early term fee that went down $10 a month over your first two years. So by the time the you know, two years ended up, you, owe, you would owe nothing if you decided to, to leave. And really what we were asking people to do was to commit to about $400 in expense, uh, which helped to ensure that we got people who were serious about taking the service at first because uh, we were literally building it one customer at a time. 
did that give you any concerns in terms of of Comcast or I don't even know if you have which cable company you have, but let's just mm-hmm. say the the big cable company and the big telephone company trying to just uh, come in and cut prices to try to deny you customers? We did have that concern. Uh, our pricing wasn't set up to be um, very much less expensive than Comcast. We we uh, came in about I believe that. When um, I think Dave Talbot did this study, but it worked out to be about 15 or 20 percent below um, what and it was Comcast that, that was available in, in our market. So we had some concerns about that, but we also had some some people who were really interested in cutting the, the cord. And we found that we had a lot of very highly motivated customers at first. And that that was a big part of why we were successful, too. The community knew what we were doing. They, they knew us from the electric service that we'd been delivering to them for years, and they really wanted us to succeed. So, and I think that's something that, that most municipal um, projects would find would be true for them, too. People like the hometown guys. We definitely see that. Um, you mentioned the the revenue targets and being well above the you know, being able to pay your, your operating costs. Um, what kind of take rate did you end up getting? So at the moment, we're at about 20%. What we tended to do was set targets for how many installations we wanted to do in a year, and that was based on how much staffing we had and what we felt like we could um, consistently deliver on with the quality. And and that number settled into about 300 installations per year, so a little bit more than one new customer a day. In order to achieve that, we needed to do very little marketing. When we opened up our doors. In effect, we sent an email blast to a list of people who had indicated an interest ahead of time. We got 300 orders within the first week. So we had a year's worth of work in front of us right off the bat. And it, it did take us a while to to get the processes running in order to do that. Now, that actually leads right into the challenges. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, let's say I'm from a nearby town that you like. <laughs> You're not going to give me bad advice on purpose. Um, and and I'm saying, hey, what do I need to know? What what are the challenges I'm going to face if I want to go down this road? Well, I think the biggest challenge that communities tend to have are challenges around uh, whether or not uh, municipal administrations are are really still uncertain about the success of building and running a network. And I would definitely tell you that if you're um, straightforward about it, um, select some good partners and um, and don't get out ahead of your skis. In other words, don't try and immediately go to, uh, to a big uh, percentage of the customers right away. Learn your business. You can do this. And um, there's a lot of good partners out there now. Um, design services are easier to get today than they used to be. The playbook of, of how to run an internet service is, is uh, getting much, much better defined than it was. So I would encourage a community to do that. Municipalities have a lot of good advantages. Uh, typically, they already have some database they could use, like the water system if they don't have an electric utility already. Um, they're used to that customer service. They know how to do horizontal construction, and uh, those services are out there. Now, what about um, the fact that, in particular in New England, you have so many smaller towns, and um, does it make sense for each of these towns to be working alone, or one of the things we always hear is that, you know, I'm sure you were hearing from your neighbors saying, hey, why don't you just build it over here? Um, so how do you think about the, the pros and cons of working together versus going in alone? 
So I believe that that New England communities are a bit small, generally, not the not the cities, of course, but the towns themselves, to really do this on their own. Uh, I do think that it makes sense to join a cooperative or work with work with neighboring communities on this. Um, even in Concord, we have about eighty six hundred uh, residential households. And even if we got 100% of those, I believe that this business would be a little bit smaller than it should be for its own good. I think that there's a big advantage in getting to some scale, um, particularly when we're talking about uh, technology businesses. And so uh, I'm actually actively working with uh, some of the other operators around the state, and we're discussing ways that we might be able to uh, collaborate, cooperate, and, and take advantage of the scale that's available in this kind of business. So I think you can both be local. A lot of it's about the value. Some of the things that the community really was happy to see us do were to have policies around net neutrality, around privacy, that would around open access that would that would enable. You know, we were trying to serve everybody. Uh, equally. And I think that really makes a big difference. So it's how you approach it um, that gives you quite a bit of the advantage. One of the things you said, it it always strikes me as interesting. Um, You know, you have a state that's um, much uh, wider than it is tall. And, and, you know, it seems to me you're probably considering working with towns that are uh, 100 miles away, whereas you may have other towns that are 30 miles away, but they're in New Hampshire. <laughs> um, is there any thought about going across state lines? I haven't given that a lot of thought. There's certainly no reason why you couldn't in, in those, those communities that are, that are up north. When I think, think about it from a Concord perspective, I definitely thought about uh, first building to those communities that are immediately adjacent to us. We already have um, some regional agreements around housing, around public safety, around school departments with those with those neighboring communities. And those are the ones that, that really make the most sense. Uh, we were working on something specifically on public safety radio, uh, which is an application that you can easily carry on a fiber network and, and improve with um, Carlisle, which is the community just to the north of us. Um, and they happen to also be the community that shares our public access television station and our high school. So uh, makes a lot of sense to work with them, and that those are the kind of things to do. If you happen to be on one of those northern or southern borders of of Massachusetts, then sure, I I, I don't think I'd hesitate to to cross a line uh, just to do that. You are you are also sharing an engineer, right, with South Bedford, if I remember correctly. We are. We're you know had a staffing need. We as we were building the business, obviously it's small um, and staff is expensive. So I needed a part time engineer, and Bedford needed a part time engineer. So we uh, shared that shared that resource, and over time uh, we're expecting to deepen that relationship. Excellent. So is there anything else that uh, we should be talking about? Uh, anything I forgot to ask you about? One of the places where we experienced some really immediate success was um, with our commercial real estate holders in town. Um, they recognized right off the bat that having fiber service in their building was going to make their their business properties more uh, attractive to to those clients that might want to want to put their offices there. So we have a fair amount of professional office space, knowledge workers, and small retailers in town, all of whom were generally underserved by the commercial offerings that were available. Um, our first gigabit customer on the Concord network was a co-working space uh, that wanted to really 
advertised that they that they had gigabit internet service in there, and so we did a did a custom uh, uh, installation for them. We also been able to really support a lot of community institutions. We have several private schools in Concord. We were able to provide them with some private VLAN services. In other words, interconnect multiple buildings from the private school that were in different parts of town. Uh, we did the same thing for, for uh, some daycare center operations and really had a focus on making sure that those institutions that, that make the community, provide community services, were, were getting prioritized um, by our network. And I think that was one of the things that was really appreciated. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good reminder because, and I'm, I'm curious if you felt this pressure as the, as the, um, the CIO that the, the network is inevitably evaluated based on the dollar return. You know, are you hitting the business plan? Do you have the right number of customers relative to what you forecast and, and things like that? Whereas these benefits, the reasons you actually build the network, they seem that they, they can get lost in the shuffle. I tended to try to keep those really right in front of customers. And certainly the feedback that I would get from customers was a real appreciation on that. The other thing that really set us apart, I think, and one of the reasons why our churn rate is virtually non-existent is um, that we did use um, local technicians to provide the on-site customer service and installation experience. So people really knew who we were. If we had an issue, we would come out oftentimes with the very same guy that installed that that customer service to replace a piece of equipment or just troubleshoot something. And that was the level of service that that we could differentiate on and people appreciated. Um, we were involved in things like uh, in the video stream for town meeting, working with the local peg access station. And when we built a high school, we installed the fiber for, for that. So being able to prioritize that and show the community that we were working on the things that were important, not necessarily the things that were going to drive a lot of bottom line, um, was something that I think was really appreciated and, and led to a lot of goodwill. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mark, for taking the time today to um, to share with us your experiences. And uh, it sounds like, you know, you, you said there's um, some potential for the future. So we'll look forward to future announcements. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Christopher talking with Mark Howell, former CIO from Concord, Massachusetts, about the community's fiber optic network. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, the Local Energy Rules podcast, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support, in any amount, keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 399 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.